Alrighty, ready. Wait, wait, holding it down the studio. What's up, my man? And Mary Goulet is off doing her something work in the world. To answer these questions, we sit down with top entrepreneurs who have exited for more than ten million. A lot of interesting guests we've been able to attract here to the best business until they share their proven tactics and strategies. And grilling those entrepreneurs who who have been able to exit for more than ten million dollars or currently run a $10 million plus business, uh, we definitely attract uh, a very interesting group of folks. I think you have to be a little bit, uh, what's the best way to put it? Um, colorful to be a uh, to be an entrepreneur, especially one who builds a business. Yes, Wade, you're jumping out of your chair already, really? Well, well just to add to that. Yes, please. As we're using today's technology to connect. Uh, you know, at the, As opposed the, to yesterday's technology, which we just advanced out of last week, so we're now in the 21st century. Thank you for that, Wade. Well, moving in that direction. Yeah. But, you know, as we're setting up Skype and um, the uh, technology was acting a bit odd, mm. um, our guest had a great quote, and if I can maybe bring him in to... What did you say about weird? I would love for you to let's. Yeah, I would love. Wade, please. I would love for you to do that. That would be a great change of pace. Have at it. And so, can you share with us what you said about weird? Yeah, it's a Hunter S. Thompson quote. He said, "When the going gets weird, the weird turn professional." Mm. Then there you have it. And there's our entrepreneurial weirdness that you were just <laughs> referring to. Yeah. All right. So uh, that is Christopher Lockhead, and uh, we're super excited to have Chris join us here on the show. What's up, my man? How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you, Steve? Yeah, really, really, really good and super excited to have you on. So straight out of the gate, we got to let folks know how you meet the criteria here of the Best Business Podcast. So did you exit from a business for more than $10 million, or are you currently running a business for more than ten? Uh, my last business, Mercury Interactive, where I was chief marketing officer, was a publicly traded company, and we sold it to Hewlett Packard for $4.5 billion. Mm. So that would be a uh, an exit with a B on the back side of that. And how early did you join Mercury? So were you were you one of the founders? Were you one of the you know first handful of employees? How how early on were you with Mercury? I joined the company when it was approximately three hundred and fifty million dollars in size. So already a significant company. Uh, but the interesting thing is we took it to over a billion, and uh, we repositioned the company around a whole new category. And we set a whole new agenda in our space, and uh, we crushed a whole bunch of competitors doing that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, obviously increased the market cap pretty materially. And then uh, Hewlett Packard finally gave us an offer we couldn't refuse. And so at that point, you were the chief marketing officer. Did you did you start out as CMO or did you work your way up to CMO? No, that's where I started. I was actually an outside advisor to the company for a little over a year and uh, not knowing it at the time, um, but it turned out that was a dating process, <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the dating turned into marriage. So, uh, so yeah, I ended up coming on board. Had a, just built a great relationship with Amnon Land and the CEO and the broader executive team. And yeah, you know, I, I don't know if you've had this experience, Steve, but there are certain times in your life you meet a group of people, and uh, you know Richard Bach famously said, "Rarely do the same people grow up under the same roof." And I just felt very comfortable in the culture there. There's many extraordinary executives, and so it just felt like a supernatural fit. Yeah, and for those who are not familiar with Mercury Interactive, what uh, what did they do? Are they still around? And uh, are you? Let's just stick with that. So, what what did Mercury do, and, and are they still around? 
So the company was broadly in the enterprise software area. The company's still around today. Mm -hmm. um, it, it got purchased by uh, HP and then ultimately spun back out in a company called Mercur, um, uh, Micromuse. And what the company did and still does for that matter is um, help run large, complex corporate IT environments. And really, uh, we did this thing called BTO, Business Technology Optimization. And the idea was to help um, information technology leaders run their IT shops professionally so that they could deliver, um, you know, the best outcomes for the business. Mm -hmm. And so when you, when, when you switched over, when you made that shift from kind of outside consultant then to full-time CMO, was the, was the compensation package, was it built around stock options and, and all of that fun stuff? So on the exit, you actually were able to reap some pretty meaningful personal rewards or how was that structured and did you benefit on the exit? Yeah, just, just like you talked about, uh, you know, I joined the company with a, uh, it's pretty typical in Silicon Valley. You, you join with a salary and, you know, compensation and bonuses and all that on the cash front. And, you know, of course you want that to be something you can live on and maybe a little bit better, but, um, the real play is on the upside. So yes, I had a meaningful stock option position in the company and suffice it to say, <laughs> Hewlett Packard, bought HP, uh, bought them Mercury, uh, they became my favorite company of all time. Yeah, I bet, right? And, and you only use Hewlett-Packard printers and computers and so on at this point, I would venture to guess. But well, Actually, uh, I use a Mac now, but um, <laughs> I still do love the company. <laughs> yeah, man. And and just to, so we can get a sense of, uh, of what this really meant for you. So eight figures, nine figures, what were you able to personally realize on that exit? Yeah, it was a multi-million dollar um, exit, and it was an exit that meant that uh, me and my family didn't have to worry about money. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Our, our last guest that we just uh, we just had on here, uh, we do a couple of shows. One show is called Reinvention Radio, and then, of course, is this show, The Best Business Podcast. And uh, our, our guest on Reinvention Radio was talking about something that he referred to um, as a, a freedom number, which I really like. I like that, I like that phrase. It sounds like that exit met your your freedom number if you will where basically you can do what you want when you want how you want where you want is that uh, did, so did you meet your freedom number on that exit yeah i absolutely did and uh you know i've had a couple exits since then so um but yeah i was 38 years old it was my third gig as a um a silicon valley uh public company cmo so i did have a track record before and had um had, had racked up a couple of wins ahead of that but mercury was clearly the biggest one and um it, it meant uh, it meant a tremendous amount of freedom for sure. And so since then, just so I'm clear, I don't want to gloss over that. So since that exit, you've gone on to be a part of two other exits as well. Uh, actually, more than two. I'd have to go back through them. I've I've been an advisor. You'll have to excuse me, Steve. I've been an advisor to or and or investor to over 50 Silicon Valley startups, and I also consume a tremendous amount of scotch. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, I can certainly point to a couple others if you wanted to talk about them. But that Mercury was certainly um, the biggest exit for sure. I got gotcha. you. And, and so with the well, with the um, you know payday, that pot of gold that you ended up realizing there, realizing there on that exit, were you? Did you parlay that into something else? Did you have a set number in your mind where you're like, I'm just simply going to go ahead and put this aside, and I won't touch that, and I'm going to have play money on another front? Or how did you? How did you approach things when that big influx of cash came in? I actually decided to retire. Um, I had started my first business at 18. I got thrown out of school for being stupid. 
I found out at 21 I was um, dyslexic. So sort of that my education uh, experience, so to speak, made a lot made a lot more sense once I found that out. But that said, I started my first company at 18. It started multiple companies early in my career. I was living in Canada. Um, my second company uh, was a wonderful exit. Um, and that's what brought me to Silicon Valley. I sold my boutique consultancy at the time to a Silicon Valley tech company that was already public, became their head of marketing. So at 28 years old, I was living in Silicon Valley and I kind of on that path. So by the time the Mercury exit happened, you know, I'd been working pretty much nonstop from 18 to 38. Mm. And the end of Mercury was super challenging and talk about that if you like. Sure. Um, and I just got to that place in my life where I thought, you know what, I, I need to hit the reset button. I, um, I went through a divorce. I, I ran away. I moved to Tahoe. I had purchased a vacation home in Tahoe several years before that. And I, I sort of did what some people do backwards. You know, I didn't have that the early time in my 20s and late teens to you know, backpack around Europe or whatever it is people like to do. And so I'd always had this dream of being a ski bum. So I moved to my ski house in Tahoe and, uh, and I became a ski bum. Mm. And, and again, just so I'm clear, because part of what we try to cover here on the show are the three phases of, uh, of business, of course, which then are the, well, starting, scaling, and, and exiting. And given the fact that you had the exit, uh, I just want to make sure that we're clear on this. What do you recommend in terms of, so if people end up with that windfall, they hit that payday like you did on the exit, did you, did you earmark a certain percentage of that after-tax money for I'm never going to touch this. This is going to sit somewhere and maybe earmark a piece of that for play money. How, how did you look at those funds? You know, in the very beginning, I I didn't really think that much about it. Uh, I just wanted to go play and and, yeah. and decompress. Um, it was enough that uh, you know I wasn't super worried about it. As I went through my divorce, um, my ex-wife got half of it. And there's an interesting story there we could talk about if you like. We, we had a very um, – uh, this may sound like a surprise. We had a very nice divorce. Mm. Um, uh, we didn't uh, – you know, it, it's not fun getting divorced. So that part was horrible. But the we never fought. We were never uh, – am I allowed to swear? I guess. Of course <laughs> you, you are. Me? Have at it. Have at it. Okay. Uh, we were never shitty to each other or any of that stuff. Um, but there's an interesting thing in the, in the law here in California – which is um, the date of separation turns out to be a really important date. And uh, we separated in, if my memory's right, in January. The outcome occurred in uh, late June, early July. And so technically, um, my ex-wife would not have been able to participate in the vast majority of the outcome because there was, as you might expect, huge appreciation in the stock and ultimately in the price HP paid for the company from January to July. Um, that said, there's also another part of the law that says in a long-term marriage, which we had, we uh, didn't have children, um, that the spouse is also um, uh, able to seek um, ongoing kind of spousal support, regardless of whether you have children. And so the way I thought about it, I sat down with my ex-wife and I said, look, the timing of this was just a freak timing. We had been together for, you know, from uh, 18 to 38, right? Mm -hmm. So a meaningful amount of time, 19, somewhere in there. I got married at 21. And so I just said, look, um, you deserve half of this. I would never be here without you. And so I want you to have half of it. Um, she thought that was great. And she um, also then said, OK, well, I'll waive my right to any kind of ongoing spousal support. 
and uh, and that's how it that's how it completed. And and I'm happy to report we're we're still good friends today. And you know I think you have to look at money through the life of lens uh, through the lens of life uh, through the lens of relationships. And mm-hmm. and at the end of the day, the person who brushes our teeth every day is the person we have to live with and feel good about. And so I, I just really wanted to do the right thing by her. Was the, uh, was the exit a blessing or a curse? Um, that's a great question. It was a curse insofar as we had set a giant uh, BHAG, big, hairy, audacious goal mm-hmm. to be one of the top five software companies in the world. And we really believe we had that shot. And there was evidence to suggest we were on that kind of a trajectory so there was a huge disappointment that we didn't get to play forward and, and fulfill that dream. On the other hand, the company had just come through the fire. Uh, we had had a super challenging crisis. Uh, we got um, caught up in a stock option stock option accounting problem. Uh, the prior November, we had to fire our CEO, CFO, and general counsel. We were being mm-hmm. investigated by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Always mm-hmm. a fun thing. When that happened, our stock absolutely tanked. So the November before the July outcome, uh, my stock options were worth almost nothing. Wow. Um, but more importantly, the company was in serious trouble. Our competitors were trying to crush us. Our employees were freaked. Uh, we got delisted by NASDAQ uh, for no good reason. We could talk about that if you like. Um, anyway, it was super challenging. But we executed like a team of Navy SEALs. The quarter we got delisted from NASDAQ and investigated, we delivered the biggest quarter in the company's history. And somehow, magically, Steve, we were able to keep the distraction of the accounting scandal and the, and the business fairly separate. And the folks at HP understood that. It was part of why we were able to sell the company and have such a huge, huge outcome. So anyway, all that is to say, by the time the outcome occurred, um, we were all pretty, pretty tired. I'm and sure. so on one hand, we were giving up on our dream. But on the other hand, uh, sometimes, you know, a pause does refresh. And so it was nice to be able to get off the rocket ship and smell the flowers and, you know, take a big, deep breath in life. Hey, Christopher, it's uh, Richie here. I have a question. When we when we cover s- starting, scaling and exiting, as, as you've now exited a few companies, do you begin with the end in mind do you specifically choose a company that you think you can scale and exit or do you feel like you have knowledge that you can kind of walk into any company and grow no i don't think i can walk into any company i think that's that's naive um in the world that i grew up in here in silicon valley um at least the people that i've been been generally associated with we're not looking for an exit in sort of a traditional sense we're actually looking for, can we be the company that designs and dominates a giant category that matters? And as a result of that, um, captures the vast majority of the economics. And my goal has always been, it was when I was a entrepreneur and operating executive, and it is today as I you know, work as an advisor and investor, I'm looking for what you could think of as enduring companies, companies that could last for generations potentially. And so well, you might call an IPO an exit. I really believe an IPO is an enter. And I'm more interested in, in long-term enduring companies that can design and dominate massive um, categories that matter over time. And that's my headset heading in. Now, along the way, you know, sometimes life changes, sometimes competitive dynamics change, and, and you, you sell the company, uh, and, that, and that does happen. 
but um, that's that's never been my goal. Let me say it that way. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. So what what I'm trying to then, and, and I think you were dancing around the answer to this, but let me just ask it poignantly. Do you think that the money and the influx of, of, of cash there, do you think that actually led to uh, the divorce? No, not at all. Not at all. Okay. Um, no, the money had nothing to do with it. When we met, uh, I didn't have a pot to piss in. I was a, you know, uh, a struggling musician slash working as an orderly shaving guys nuts in a hospital. Um, and, you know, we which now you just do for fun because you can. Exactly. <laughs> if you need me to shave your nuts, I would do it happily. Well, maybe not happily, but I'd probably need a shot. You haven't, with, yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, yeah, you just wait till you scotch. see it first. Let's, uh, yeah. Unfortunately, we'll go to the good com. Yeah. When you're a 16, 17-year-old kid and you walk into somebody's hospital room and, and you say, hello, Mr. Johnson, my name's Christopher, and I'm here to shave you. And he says, oh, well, I already shaved today. And you say, not where I'm going to shave you. <laughs> right? and you, ha- you have his full attention. Oh, I bet you do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so let, let's kind of move forward just here in a, in a couple different ways. And, and first of all, I want to just let's go back to no matter how you slice it, I mean, you were a part of, uh, of the team that was able to 3X the business, right? So, I mean, even though you came in at $350 million, which is, I mean, it's a huge amount of revenue for any business, to get to a billion, I mean, that had to take uh, an, a massive undertaking. So what, what were a couple of the key things that happened? Uh, was it a couple of key hires? Was it a couple of key initiatives? Was it a couple of key mindset shifts? What had to happen in order for you to 3X the business? Uh, great question. A, a couple things. Uh, and I'd say off the top, there comes a point in every person's career and in every company's life where they realize that the number one problem they have is the current position that they hold. So in the case of Mercury, the company had done incredibly well, um, and it had become a leader in its category of what was at the time called software quality testing. However, the company had massive ambitions beyond that. And the ambition was way bigger than the current category and the current uh, dominant brand position the company had. And so because the company was known as this QA testing company, when it wanted to show up and have this much bigger agenda, people sort of said, well, who are you to have that agenda? And the agenda was audacious, which is we wanted to set the agenda for how information technology organizations in global 2000 companies should operate. And so it was the 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 the, if you will, the category design and the, and the point of view that we put out into the market would be much more akin to the thing that you would expect, something you'd expect maybe an IBM or a Microsoft or an HP or somebody at that size to do. It was incredibly audacious. So we, we redesigned this or we recreated a whole new category for the company to play in that was highly differentiated. I could describe it at any level of detail you want. So that was one big thing we did. The company had a very aggressive product strategy to go build that out. Uh, the company did a handful of uh, acquisitions to help build that out. And Mercury um, was one of these companies that just executed like Navy SEALs. It was originally founded in Israel. Um, the CEO was an ex-commando. The head of engineering was an ex-fighter pilot, mm. fighter pilot captain. And so there was this very, very aggressive, um, dynamic execution-oriented approach. The company had an incredible sales culture, the best sales organization I've ever been associated with. Mm -hmm. And so when you have those things in place and you have a dominant position 
and you have the courage to create a whole new category and then you execute against that new vision with the same level of a passion and I would even say, for, and I mean this more from a business point of view, violence on the market, you get everybody's attention. So it was really a combination of great position, great culture, great execution, uh, acquisition strategy, all sitting inside this broad, bigger uh, category strategy to design and dominate a whole new space. So Christopher, I have a question for you uh, relating back to your last quote. You were saying the number one problem you have is the current position you hold. What what was something you had to break to to grow the company from where it was to the you know tr- three exit? What was what was something uh, you had to yeah, break? I'll give you a simple example. The company's the economic buyer for the company at the time, the, the the sort of community or audience, however you want to think about it, that the company was extremely well known with was uh, software quality managers or or leaders within large organizations as well as other software companies. Um, that person typically tended to be, depending on the size of the company, two or three, maybe even sometimes four levels below, in the case of a, a enterprise business, the chief information officer, or in the case of a software or technology company, whoever was the head of engineering, the head of development. So although we had a good position with, with the economic buyer who was spending forty, fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars uh, with the company, in order for us to execute this vision for the new category, business technology optimization, we had to go from selling at that level, marketing at that level, building products for that level, to selling to the C-suite, somebody who uh, was, you know, had a seat at the board table, who typically reported directly to the chief executive, who had a gigantic budget. And we were not known to that person that well. And the degree to, where, to which we were known to her, she knew us as kind of more of a niche player. And so we had to figure out a way to, to have um, the, the moxie with that person to walk into her office and say, hey, listen, we have a strategy for how you should run IT going forward and, um, and a technology that's going to allow you to do that. And so to break three or four or five levels up in the organization, to be able to have those conversations and also to take the transaction, our average transaction size went, you know, from thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars to you know half a million dollars. And it wasn't by the time we were done, it wasn't unusual for us to do ten million dollar transactions. Wow. You know, and that all happened over the course of, you know, um, three or four, yeah, three years or so. And so that's a huge jump um, for anybody to make. And so that's kind of like doubling down on breaking it. You were breaking the mold of how you went to talk to someone and you told them they had to break the way mm-hmm. they were doing it. Yeah. I mean, we had to walk in with a set of, um, you know, a very large, uh, whatever you want to call them <laughs> and, and, and have, and have the courage to look a very senior executive in the eye, somebody who may not have heard of us, or if they've heard of us, they thought of us as a niche and say, um, we've discovered the, uh, the tablets for the way forward. And, and we think you should subscribe to our point of view about that. And that's a gigantic leap for any niche player to make. Yeah, for sure, man. And, uh, and for those of you who just need a, a tad bit more on, uh, on Christopher Lockhead, who we're talking to today, uh, Chris hosts uh, an amazing podcast called Legends uh, and Losers, uh, appropriately named Legends and Losers from the standpoint of you, you kind of have to be a loser at least one or two or three times in your life in order to become legendary. And so uh, on the surface, you look at legends and losers, you know, but that's, and, and now that I understand, because I've listened to the show, it's, it's great, Chris, I really love what you're doing over there. 
Uh, I love the title. At first, I was like, what is he talking about? And then uh, Chris also has a phenomenal book out called Play Bigger. So we're talking to Christopher Lockhead here today. Uh, let's go back to Mercury for a second or just kind of business in general because, I, you know, as a CMO, you are uh, responsible for generating visibility for a company. What I've always said is that, you know, and, and there are people listening right here right now who have perhaps the world's best widget. You know, whatever that widget might be, it is the world's best. And, and it would reinvent and dismantle and reinvigorate a category, whatever you want to look at, you know, however you want to say it. But nobody knows about it. So in reality, it doesn't exist. So uh, my philosophy is visibility begets visibility, right? The more visible you are, the more visibility you're able to generate for yourself. As a CMO, uh, that's a big part of what you're trying to do there is generate visibility. So Mercury may not have had the best widget, but they damn well had the best marketer, right? Because that is, at the end of the day, how you're able to scale a business is through visibility, through marketing. That was your role. That was your job. First of all, do you agree with the statement? And second of all, uh, what were some of the key things that you did in order to generate massive visibility for Mercury? Yeah, so I absolutely agree with the comment. No surprise. Uh, and what I would to answer the second part, and I think this is probably um, – because I think the first part is is hopefully obvious to most people. The second part is a lot less obvious. Yeah, we did not do anything that you would call traditional marketing, Steve. So here, here's what I would posit to you: most people in business believe, like they believe in the availability of oxygen, uh, that the best product, the best service wins. And therefore, from a marketing and sales perspective, what there is to do, create visibility and visibility specifically around the features of the product. Because when people see the carbodingulator, they're going to want to buy it, aren't they? Mm -hmm. And that's not true. Mm -hmm. That's not what Henry Ford did. That's not what Steve Jobs did. That's not what Sarah Blakely did. So what we did at Mercury was we said, we're not just going to scream our name and we're not going to just talk about our products. We're going to create a whole new category here. And, and, and so here's the mistake most companies make. Do you remember the movie uh, Something About Mary? Sure. There's a scene in the movie where Ben Stiller is in the car and he picks up this hitchhiker serial killer played by um, Harlan Chris. Williams. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yep, yep. And by the way, if you get a chance to see Harlan, he's hysterical live. Um, and they get to talking and they're talking about the serial killer Harlan's sort of strategy for his life. And he says... So, well, you, you know, there's that infomercial called Seven Minute Abs. Well, what I'm going to do, I'm going to do Six Minute Abs. Mm -hmm. And Stiller looks at him and he goes, well, yeah, that's great. But w what happens when somebody does Five Minute Abs? Mm -hmm. And most companies play a comparison game, Five Minute Abs, in an existing market category. Legends don't do that. They are unique. They, they want to stand alone. They want to break and take new ground. They want all those who come after them to be compared to them. They don't want to be compared to others. And so the most legendary entrepreneurs, the most legendary marketers understand that it's the company that teaches the world to see a problem and then therefore a solution in exactly the way they want. That's what creates new categories. And so in our case at Mercury, we had a strategy to do category design. We had a point of view around BTO and how you could optimize the business outcome of IT that was materially different than anything anybody was talking about. We believe we had a unique product 
uh, set to deliver against that. But most importantly, we were carving out a new niche, a new category. And when a, when a um, meaningful number of senior technology executives woke up and said, you know what? We need to optimize the business outcome of IT. This business technology optimization thing, th this is a strategy we need to be on because this is the right problem to solve. Well, at that point, when they showed up, we had about six or seven meaningful competitors. None of them were talking about that. None of them were positioning that way. Uh, all of them were having a carbidingulation conversation, that is to say a product conversation. And so the minute we did that, we were the thought leader. We were designing a new category. And then what would happen is um, our, our, our prospects and customers would say to our competitors, well, what's your BTO strategy? And at that point, they were fucked, and we become the category leader in a giant new niche that we created. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's brilliant. And, and for those who just may have missed it, uh, including me, uh, BTO being what? Business technology optimization. Thank you. <laughs> so let me let me ask you this. I mean, you've got your finger on the pulse of, uh, well, as you and, and I have had a chance to chat, I know the circles that you run in and having a guy like Jim Getz on, uh, on SpeedDow, who is the, you know, arguably the most successful venture capitalist like to ever play the game at Sequoia Capital there. Uh, and you run in some really interesting circles. What what are you hearing now in terms of opportunity? What what's a guy like Jim looking for? What what what's someone like you looking for? And maybe in that discussion, we can open the eyes up for folks in terms of where some opportunities might lie. Yeah. So let me start at thirty thousand feet, and then we can submarine if you want. Yeah. The big aha I've had. And this is that something that others have educated me on. So I don't want to claim this is my thinking. Uh, guys like Jim, guys like Mike Maples from Floodgate Capital, guys like Duncan Davidson from uh, Bullpen Capital, uh, my, my dear friend Kevin Maney, who just wrote an unbelievable book called Unscaled, which I highly, highly recommend, and a number of others. They believe the following. They believe it's 1897 right now. Hmm. And what I mean by that is if you go back and look at the late 1800s to the early 1900s, what you notice is a time of massive technology innovation, massive new company creation, category creation, and, and new ways of doing things that had profound impact on society. So we had you know, electricity. We had, obviously, uh, the electric light that came as a result of that. We had the telephone. We had the automobile. We had refrigeration on top of that, et cetera, et cetera. And so there was about a 20, 15, maybe the 25-year period in there where all those things happened. The Industrial Revolution starts. And if you fell asleep in you know 1897 and you woke up in sort of 1920, you would go, hey, what the fuck happened? Like mm -hmm. you missed a ton. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the smart people that I know here in Silicon Valley believe that we are living in that kind of time now, that that started roughly a decade ago. Interestingly enough, uh, Kevin Maney says it didn't start with the Internet, but it really started with the cloud. And that that in 20 years from today, um, you know, Steve, we're not going to recognize the world. Mm -hmm. And so there's a whole number of technologies and categories that are emerging that could have tremendous profound impact and 
those folks and certainly me are trying to play at the edge of the those things and we can get into the details about those things at you know whatever level of uh yeah whatever i mean just go to. and we can keep it at a thirty thousand foot view but i mean we're talking about blockchain we're talking about iot we're talking about vr ii like what what specifically are you talking about voice all of that so so take voice as an example uh my friend jamie J. Uh, he says that um, we've been living with the GUI for a long time, the graphical user interface. Well, we're now going to experience the CUI, the conversational user interface, voice. My brother-in-law, uh, Martin, says you know, uh, he has daughters who are 13 or 14 years old, my nieces. He said they're the last generation that's going to learn how to type. So voice is a great example. We have self-driving fill-in-the-blank. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, Steve, you mentioned the blockchain. Of course, most people connect blockchain and crypto, which, of course, they're deeply connected. But if you listen to a guy like Duncan Davidson talk about blockchain, what you begin to realize is blockchain is an infrastructure that uh, enables a whole new way of uh, transactions and commerce and ultimately marketplaces to occur. So I'll give you an example that he gave me. Um and this sort of combines IoT, blockchain, self-driving, uh, and machine learning and AI. So imagine a self-driving car that you, you and I are in. We're on our way to a meeting together, and it drops us off where, where we're going. And maybe we're in downtown San Francisco. Well, now that self-driving car has to go park its, its own ass. So it communicates with a number of um, parking facilities that are nearby, finds an open space, goes to that open space, checks itself in. There's a financial transaction it has to pay for that space. And then, and then when we're ready, we call it and it comes back and gets us. And so there's a financial transaction when, when we call the car. There's a financial transaction when it goes and parks itself. And then there's a, another financial transaction when it comes back to get us and take us to the next place we're going. All those things can be, um, if the blockchain is the uh, foundational component of those things, all of those transactions uh, can happen seamlessly. No one touches a credit card. Um, the, the, the validity of whether each party can pay each other party, uh, so the verification, if you will, that happens today when we go to a, a store and we swipe our Visa card or whatever, all that happens simultaneously, magically uh, and is verified through the blockchain and transactions happen. And um, you and I might not know who the who the transaction providers are and who the provider of the, the parking space was, or we may not even know who the provider of the automated vehicle was. Once you begin to understand that and you see, huh, you could actually have intelligent automated marketplaces doing things together in a quote-unquote self-driving way, and you begin to uh, apply that example that Duncan uses to all sorts of kinds of uh, niches, market categories, use cases, however you want to think about it, your mind begins to get really big really fast around what's possible when you have something as powerful as the blockchain underwriting uh, being an infrastructure for these kinds of uh, this kind of a future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I do think that there is something to be said for, of course, that that bigger thinking, if you will. At the same token, there are a lot of entrepreneurs who just want to create something to sustain the the lifestyle, if you will, that they have in their own mind, what their vision is for themselves and for their 
for their family is is scale and 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 growth is that is that always something we should aspire to as an entrepreneur well uh there's an interesting thing about this if you believe my buddy kevin whose new book is called unscaled what all this stuff is leading us to is uh the ability to have thousands of micro niches uh, my new book is called Niche Down, and legendary entrepreneurs today are niching down. They are trying to find a very small space where they can add a tremendous amount of value, dominate that niche, and actually by not being a giant company, you see niche down opportunities everywhere in a way um, that that you didn't before, and I can give you all kinds of examples if you want. And so. I think today the technology allows us an opportunity to niche down and uh, dominate what on its surface feels like a very small niche, um, but that can, uh, if you're a solopreneur, provide an incredibly awesome income for you and your family. And over time, if you build the right kind of business, one that doesn't require you to do you know, shit ton of work in it. Um, and then if you have bigger aspirations, um, this micro niching down uh, in these technology areas, uh, there's this weird dichotomy in business where when you dominate a small niche, it actually allows you to expand out. And so by niching down, you actually get to, um, you know, play on a bigger canvas over time if that's what you want to do. And so I think regardless of whether you want to build the next Facebook or you're just trying to figure out how to be a legendary bakery, um, the technology and um, uh, the thinking around sort of how do we dominate these kind of micro niches uh, allows for all sorts of entrepreneurial opportunities, whether you're a, a biggie entrepreneur raising a couple hundred million dollars from Jim and the folks at Sequoia on Sand Hill Road, or whether it's the three of us getting together, dreaming up uh, a cool local bar that we want to start. So when you're niching down to that, to that point, uh, completely agree. But at the same time, I'm wondering – do they begin with the end in mind or are they niching down and that rollover, that expansion that you're referring to, do they just notice that as they're seeing results that they're getting from the niche? I guess I'd ask you what exactly you mean by the end in mind. So like I'm going to niche down and I'm going to sell, like ironically I'll get in touch with you after this, we sell whiskey stills and we decided we're going to start going after the do-it-yourself market and uh, you know, niche down in say, we're going to send you this week is rum, all the recipe uh, this week is, you know, kind of like the blue apron, but of recipes for do it yourself, alcohol makers. And, you know, th- we, we really like it. And we like the idea of scaling with this super or excuse me, niching down on this, but we kind of always are trying to looking far ahead to like, well, what does this look like down the road? Or should we just stay focused in the niche? I guess like, how far away or down the road do you recommend looking or do you only look out a year ahead, three years ahead, five years ahead? Like, I think if you're trying to look five years ahead, you're kidding yourself. Yeah. Because there's a lot of things from five years ago that are going down today that, you know, maybe Elon Musk or, you know, maybe. But mm-hmm. the vast majority of us mere mortals, certainly myself, did not see coming. Yeah, you know, I'll give you a simple example. I was reading an article a day or two ago about the NBA's new um, gaming strategy, and this they view this as a new part of their business. And the NBA 
is hiring gamers who play digital basketball. They are sponsoring them so that they can put these video game basketball players into giant auditoriums where people pay money to come and watch them play video games of basketball. Mm-hmm. Now, listen, I don't care who you are. If, if you say that you saw that uh, maybe five <laughs> years ago, there might have been a few. Ten years ago, NFW. And so yeah. I, I think um, pick the niche, design it and dominate it. And then as that's happening, ask yourself the question. It was one of my favorite questions in business. Because uh, we're all experts on other people, but often it's hard to be an expert on what we should do. And so to get that third person thinking, my, one of my favorite questions is, if we were smart and we were us, what would we do? And in some cases, doubling down on the niche and just dominating that and staying with it is what there is to do. And in some cases, you might find yourself in an opportunity to meaningfully expand, which is what we did back in the old Mercury days, or to create uh, adjacent niches, Um or to sell. Uh, I just had a conversation with David Sachs, who was um, one of the early uh, f- co-founders of PayPal. He was the founder of Yammer. And, you know, we were talking about his Yammer experience. And, um, you know, he wanted to play the whole thing forward. But after three years into the business, Microsoft showed up and said, hey, David, how about $1.2 million? And David decided to take the money and move on to the next thing. And mm-hmm. so, I think if we stay really, really maniacally focused on what's the niche that we're trying to design and dominate, if we get product, company, and category right, we, we call that prosecuting the magic triangle. And if as we do that, you know, from time to time we look up and we say, if we were smart and we were us, what would we do? Keep doubling down on this niche, go to an adjacent niche, expand the category potential, exit. These are all very viable or very valuable things to talk about, and each one of them could very well be the right answer. And I think if we continuously have rigorous answer, uh, rigorous conversation about that, uh, that's a good thing. But, and this is the big but, the way you get to have those options is you are the individual, if you're a solopreneur, or you're the business who designed and dominate, dominated a, a niche that matters. Mm-hmm. Wade, I think you uh, you had something there. What's going on, bud? Yeah, well, no, it is fascinating to listen to this. And just to see if I'm picking it up correctly, it sounds to me like what you're encouraging people to do is be uniquely exceptional for a moment. Find yes. the unique thing, do it exceptionally, do it exceptionally now, and then let everything else flow from that. Yes, and the other word, Wade, I would I would amplify that sits right next to exactly what you're saying is different. And not to get too corny with you guys, but one of my big dreams in life is that one day people realize there's a um, – most people focus on the incremental value of what makes them better as opposed to the exponential value of what makes them different. And what I would – argue is that if you think about any individual, whether they're a musician, an artist, uh, a scientist, or an entrepreneur, you think about any company that you admire, what they have in common, these, these extraordinary people and or companies, is they are unique. They are different. They break and take new ground. And ultimately, they become known for a niche that they own. Picasso doesn't become Picasso in the beginning because he's just painting nice paintings like everyone else. And he's a good painter, 
but a sense, in a sense, he's competing on better. Are my paintings of flowers better than whoever's, right? The minute he starts with the bright colors and the boxes and he takes the boob and he sticks it where the ear should be and it looks all unusual, like nothing anybody's ever seen before, at first blush, people look at it and go, well, that looks like the work of a drunken six-year-old. Mm -hmm. And he says, no, that's where you're wrong. It's a new type of art. And that type of art is called cubism. And the big aha is the category makes the company. The category makes the career, not the other way around. There's all this asinine discussion today about branding and personal branding and all of that. Brands only matter if the category matters. So nobody gave a shit about Picasso mm -hmm. until he said cubism. And, and, and Wade, to get back to your comment, he was different. He had the courage to be different. And the world today more than ever needs more people focused on the exponential value of doing things that are meaningfully different, that are meaningful step forward. Yeah, really, really sound advice. And just uh, for those uh, who missed some of that brilliance, I, I highly encourage you to hit the rewind button on that and, uh, and, and listen back because it's just absolutely brilliant stuff there. Let me ask you a question. So, Chris, in your mind, uh, speaking of things that matter, at this point, um, well, I mean, you, you've got your show called Legends and Losers, and I know you're all about creating uh, legendary lives and, and businesses and so on. Uh, at this point, do you consider yourself to matter in the scheme of things as far as the world goes? And uh, if so, why? And if not, what are you going to do over the next 10 years to make it so that you do? <laughs> Well, I hope I matter a little. You do. Uh, you know, my wife likes me. Um, my mom thinks I'm awesome. Um, <laughs> in the context of legends and losers, uh, no surprise, we're pioneering a new category of podcast. And so um, if you go back and look at how technology works, in the beginning, when a new technology category emerges, people take the new technology and they apply it to the old paradigm. So most podcasts today are uh, radio shows on the Internet. And that's when the movie camera was invented. That's what people did. They took the movie camera, they brought it to a theater, and they taped a play, and they put that on TV. And over time, they, they understood that the new technology allowed for – it was really a new medium. And today, of course, we have television shows that are, and movies that are very different than, than a recorded play. What Legends and Losers is is I got to this place that said um, – uh, the technology of podcasting allows us to not have any of the constraints of radio. Mm -hmm. And so um, I wanted to create a platform where we had real meaningful dialogues, where it wasn't about uh, quick tips or handy tricks or sound bites or, or, or any of that stuff um, uh, or talking points. So what Legends and Losers is, is a long form narrative, authentic conversation about what it really takes to build a legendary business and a legendary life in a world of quick tips. And, uh, you know, I don't know that I want to name names, but, you know, there's a lot of idiot entrepreneurial porn artists out there right now who are essentially, you know, business Kardashians. Yeah. And, and that stuff's not meaningful. And, you know, um, what people I think want today for every Kardashian ass selfie there is an equal and opposite reaction. And so what Legends and Losers is, is an opportunity for people to have what you could think of as an eavesdropping experience. Two or three people sitting down, 
having a meaningful conversation about what it really takes to design a legendary business and a legendary life, and, and hopefully having some fun along the way. Yeah. And the experience that the audience has is an eavesdropping experience. You feel like you're listening to a conversation as opposed to being spoon-fed you know, the three salient points or the net-net, et cetera. And as you guys know, there's a huge desire today for people wanting to experience authentic conversation because many of us learn that way. Mm -hmm. And when you can eavesdrop like a fly on the wall of a great conversation, um, you know, with, with Sebastian Younger or, you know, four-star general Stanley McChrystal or billionaire entrepreneur Jeff Hoffman or on and on and on, mm -hmm. that's a powerful thing as opposed to something that's cut up into pieces, highly edited, highly massaged, and spoon-fed to you like you're an idiot who can only handle sound bites. Right. Well, fortunately, uh, it sounds like we're on the same page then as far as all that goes. And uh, I'm glad to know that at least we've got uh, a little bit of it right as far as Christopher Lockett is concerned, and that's what we try to do here. No, and I, I, you know what? It's, it's funny. I'll say to you guys, um, part of why I wanted to be here with you guys is I think you guys get that. You know, the, the, the category of podcast we are is a dialogue show. Yeah. Um, as opposed to a, a standard interview show, which is really a collision of a prefabricated narrative and a guest's talking points. And in, in the beginning, I went on as many podcasts as I could go on. And I realized if I went on your standard, you know, bullshit interview show, mm -hmm. A, I couldn't stand it. And B, if you like that, you're going to hate Legends and Losers because <laughs> we chase yeah. zebras down rabbit holes and we have long conversations and we get into it and, you know, it gets emotional sometimes. And, you know, they're, they're, we're trying to capture something very authentic, right, as opposed yeah. to the sliced and diced uh, bullshit. Yeah, for sure, man. And, and that's why one of, the, one of the reasons why I'm a big fan, one of the reasons why I'm definitely looking forward to being on the show as well. So we'll definitely have some fun there. And uh, if you're interested in finding out more information uh, about Chris, uh, of course, check out the Legends and Losers podcast. Uh, go pick yourself up a copy of Play Bigger, How Pirates, Dreamers, and Innovators Create and Dominate Markets. When is uh, Niche Down coming out? It's coming out in mid-July this summer. In mid-July. That's awesome. And then if people want more information about you, where is the best place for them to go? Legendsandlosers.com. There you go. All right, my friend, we'll, uh, we'll let you jump here. Chris, really do appreciate you joining us here on the Best Business Podcast, and you can get more information, as Chris said there, at legendsandlosers.com. All right, Richie, really interesting stuff, man. You know, it's always great to have brilliant folks here on the program, and, uh, and of course, we knew Chris was going to be brilliant, and uh, just given his background and his experience and everything else that he's been able to accomplish, uh, it's just... It's it's an honor and and it's humbling and it's appreciated that uh, entrepreneurs like Chris uh, take the time out of their busy schedules to join us here on the Best Business Podcast. What uh, what stands out for you? I mean, there's a lot of good shit there, oh, man. man. What stands I, out for you in terms of what he said? And, and I, I got a couple things. I mean, but what this what is stands the most amount, most amounts of notes I've I know ever, you borrowed my pen. Your I've pen ever ran taken. Out. I ran out of ink on mine. Right. I basically just, I can't wait till we go live so I can rewind and listen to this like yeah. three times. Um, I would say first and foremost, just what a down to earth guy he is. I mean, um, you know, a lot of us that haven't had the opportunity to hang out with people that have grown companies that big, yeah. you know, we kind of have this 
you know, one percenter mentality of like, oh, they're way over there. Sure. And it's it's very obvious that, you know, I could picture him sitting in a restaurant and help out, you know, Joe Schmo, Jane Schmo, whatever. I don't yeah. mean that they're yeah. less. Like he would treat he them would like out. a regular human being. And it, I think that is uh, one of the more inspiring things I got out of it because the rest of it I could just go mm-hmm. for days on, on all the notes I got. Yeah. I uh, So, I, I mean, Jiminy, so, so many interesting points and, and so much advice there to take uh, take to heart. I, I really do like the the whole concept of breaking and taking – new ground you know and how the category really defines the opportunity and and not even the the business or the person if you will but that the category itself and and you know it's interesting right because that's i mean that's what we're looking at with uh with my wife and uh and the funeral industry Mm -hmm. you know because that's the kind of industry that well it's not going anywhere but lord knows it's groundbreaking well yeah right But Lord knows that it's it's ripe for uh, disruption and, and taking uh, new ground, so to speak. And um, and also really appreciated uh, the, the thinking around how podcasting uh, is kind of like radio without restrictions. Mm-hmm. You know, just and and I think sometimes we uh, tend to err a little bit on making this kind of radio-ish to some extent and then kind of putting it into the mold of a podcast. So uh, so it's a good reminder. You know, it's just, a, it's just a good reminder. I'd also say the being different really stood out for me too. When you saw me put my hand up like this and see my little tweaky pinky here, uh-huh. I, when I worked in television film, I used to stare at the camera with my buddies who were taking measurements <laughs> and I'd say, one day this is going to make me a lot of money. Yeah, so for, it, the, for, for audio being theater of the mind, uh, Richie's pinky is kind of bent over to the side there. It doesn't... <laughs> quite go up to match the and it the, just doesn't extend. that was what i was getting at it's yeah. just being different right like everyone's in this world trying to always learn from someone else to be more like them mm-hmm. and i think getting out of this from christopher is you know no be uniquely you claim the category and own it yeah well definitely check out uh legends and losers that is uh christopher's podcast and uh he's had a lot of well he named a few of the folks that he's had on the show so he's had a lot of really interesting folks on uh, on that show, definitely check out uh, his book, Play Bigger, How Pirates, Dreamers, and Innovators Create and Dominate Markets. Uh, and then when his new book, Niche Down, comes out, uh, definitely take a look at that as well. All right, my friends, we'll talk to you next time. You've been listening to Beyond Eight Figures. Share your thoughts on today's episode and what you'll apply to your business by emailing us at feedback at beyond8figures.com. And if you haven't already done so, we'd greatly appreciate it if you took a moment now to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Until next time, keep scaling.